0: Acts chapter 20, this evening, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, we come to Acts chapter 20 this evening. Verse 1, after the uproar had ceased, and we remember that Paul is continuing his third missionary journey at this point, uh, that great riot that occurred uh, there at the theater in Ephesus as we studied last week. And uh, after the uproar of all of that, uh, the ceasing uh, of that with the uh, exerted uh, authority of, uh, of the leader there in the, in the city of, of Ephesus, that Paul called the disciples there in Ephesus to himself he embraced them, and he departed to go to Macedonia. Macedonia being northern, uh, modern northern Greece, and uh, so this great affection that he had for the body of Christ, and not merely the theologian, the great theologian that he was, but he loved people. And there's something about a hug and embracing and departing, uh, and uh, that. expressed that related to Paul's heart toward those he uh, made up the body of Christ. And when he had gone over that region of Macedonia, northern uh, Greece, uh, and he encouraged them with many words. So he is continuing, as he intended on this third missionary journey, to visit the churches that had been established in the first two missionary journeys and to build them up in the faith. It was a very, very hostile environment toward Christianity at that time. It would become much worse, but uh, it was uh, still very much that, and uh, uh, in ter- especially in terms of uh, of the Jews coming against uh, the teachings of Paul and the teaching of the gospel. And so he then came to Greece uh, proper and uh, he stayed there uh, three months. And so he makes his way now into uh, that part of Greece. He stays for a period of three months and uh, he had intended to make his way to the city of Jerusalem and uh and is a as a part of a quick move back to Jerusalem, uh, this threat that is in plot that comes against him for his life as he was uh, uh, about to sail to Syria, making his way toward Jerusalem, this changed everything uh, that uh, intent of his heart was put off a little while, and then he decided to return. Uh, through uh, Macedonia and so went back up into northern Greece again and strengthening uh, the body of Christ there. And so Peter of Berea uh, accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Segundus of the Thessalonians. So we see people from these various churches that he had been to and encouraging them, churches that he had been used to establish. They were now joining him on his journey. Gaius of uh, Derby and Timothy and uh, Tychicus and also Trophimus of Asia. And these men going ahead waited for us at Troas. And the us uh, refers to uh, Paul and it refers to Silas and it refers to um, Luke, Dr. Luke, who is writing uh, by the Holy Spirit the book of Acts. And so they make their way onto Troas under the instruction of the Apostle Paul. Paul has the intention of um, meeting them there shortly. And, but we, Luke said, sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. So you kind of need a map in the back of your Bible to follow all of this. But during that period, uh, Paul uh, headed over to Philippi, a church that loved him and a church that he loved, and uh, spent a little bit of time there, And uh, and then in five days he joined them uh, in the the city of uh, of Troas, as he had instructed them, and there he stayed for seven. Uh, days, and so he joined the team there, uh, and uh, because he leaves on a early on a uh, the following Monday morning, uh, then he would have arrived at on that Monday or Tuesday of that week. now, on the first day of the week, immediately before his departure after the end of the seven days when the disciples came together uh, to break bread. And the first day of the week, of course, is uh, Sunday. And, and so uh, there's going to be in Troas all of these Christians come together and they're going to have a, a, a meeting. And the Apostle Paul is going to teach at that meeting. And they're going to enjoy the Lord's Supper together. Probably enjoy um, a meal together after the evening, as uh, events have occurred. And so they come together for all of that. It occurred on a Sunday. Sometimes people want to fight. Uh, only people, only uh, the Sabbath-only people that say, "Well, everybody should meet on the Sabbath, and Sunday is an illegitimate day uh, for assembling together." All days are the same in Christ, and so you can assemble whenever you want, uh, but uh, here we see a case of uh, uh, Sunday worship going on, as well as many other uh, cases for it in the New uh, New Testament. And so they came together. Sundays were a, a good day. It, it is an evening service. Almost certainly it begins in the evening, remembering that um, the early body of Christ was made up of a lot of different people, but it was also made up of slaves and uh, servants, and so they wouldn't have the day off on a Sunday. Sunday is is a day off, is is something that's extraordinary for uh, the world that has been influenced by Christianity and by the Bible. So they would have worked uh, these folks right on through the week, and so this gave them an opportunity to come out and be a part of of the meeting uh, as well. And so Paul, uh, uh, ready to depart the next day that Monday, he spoke to them and he continued his message until midnight. And so there's an urgency about what he is, um, what he wants to share with them, and uh, he only has limited time with them, and so uh, he doesn't limit uh, his uh, sermon and his teaching to A few minutes and a few uh, remarks. He continued his message until evening, now uh, until midnight. Now there were many lamps in the upper room, and evidently they're meeting in a third story uh, of a building uh, somewhere there in Troas. Many lamps up in that upper room where they were all gathered together. People had come probably from all of the surrounding area as well. The Apostle Paul being there. And in a window in that that third uh, story, uh, there sat a young man named uh, Eutychus, and so probably uh, junior high aged for you know how we look at uh, uh, things in in terms of a, a young man uh, today. And uh, he's sitting up in that uh, window, probably trying to get some fresh air. If you've ever traveled around the world and been in a, a Christian meeting. And uh, not always is there good air circulation, and certainly no air conditioning back in those days, so a lot of bodies using up the oxygen. Uh, the Holy Spirit lets us know that there were a lot of lanterns that were using up the oxygen as well, and so a little oxygen depletion it 's so hard to keep your <laughs> your focus and uh, and so he is sinking into uh, a deep sleep, and finally he was overcome. Uh, by sleep, and so I don't know, I think all of us have experienced that in life, um, whether as a kid trying to stay awake and, uh, till midnight on uh, New Year's Eve, uh, the, where I would experience it probably the most in my life is if you've ever t- uh, taken an international trip and, and crossed several time zones, and you come back home, and you've got jet lag. And uh, three o'clock in the afternoon here is midnight wherever you've come from. And I just about don't care how determined you are to stay awake sitting in that chair or that couch. You are going to succumb uh, to that other time zone. And uh, no matter how strong the fight is, and then you fall into sleep. And so it's, it's very picturesque. We understand this related to our own lives. I'm going to stay awake. I'm going to stay awake. This is the Apostle Paul. I'm not going to sleep in church. And, and finally, uh, you sink into uh, not merely a sleep, but a deep sleep. And so he was overcome by it. And uh, as Paul continued speaking, uh, he loses his kind of balance and leverage sitting in that, uh, in that window three stories up uh, uh, and he fell down from the third story and he was taken up dead. Remember, Luke was a, a doctor and that's his assessment of Eutychus' condition. The fall resulted in his death. Um, I don't know how many of you have ever fallen from a third-story uh, building to hard stones below, but that's certainly enough uh, to kill a person. It's interesting, when I worked for the phone company uh, way back when, uh, they would always, whenever there was a fatality on the job, uh, they would send out these notices to, either ins- to, uh, th- to notify uh, linemen, to notify s- uh, splicers, to notify cable uh, installers, Of when somebody died and how they died on the job, so that we could avoid doing those same things. And uh, almost always, the death involved uh, a fall of somewhere between uh, six and eight feet. Uh, usually someone who was up on a ladder or something like this fell, hit their head awkwardly against some equipment or onto the floor, and they died. It wasn't somebody burning a pole from 40 feet or something like that. It was was that that kind of a a thing. And so here is a fall much greater than that, and uh, and he has died. I don't know how many of you had This is going to be my, I don't know how many of you sermon tonight, but I don't know how many of you um, ever uh, shared a bunk bed growing up. But if you have and you ever had the upper bunk, you know what it is to fall into a deep sleep. And I mean, what does it take? Less than a second to hit the floor. Um, And how can you dream that you're falling for less than a second? And yet you do. You have the sensation, I'm falling. And, and it's a part of your dream somehow. And then, boom, you hit the floor and, uh, and the whole crash of the whole thing and, uh, and wake up to a very unpleasant uh, uh, experience. Certainly unpleasant here when, uh, certainly as he died. Certainly unpleasant for his parents and his loved ones and the church as a whole. How would you like to... Go down as having led that meeting. Yeah, that guy. I mean, get out of there before midnight when that guy's teaching. Bad things happen at midnight uh, with him. And so he falls down, he's taken up dead. And Paul went down immediately. The three stories fell on him, much in the way that uh, Elisha uh, fell upon the young boy that uh, had died in his mother's arms with something in his head and uh, embraced him. And then he said, do not trouble yourself for his life is in him. And so uh, this is a resurrection that occurs. It's a miracle of the Holy Spirit. Uh, uh, Luke declares him to be dead, and then the Apostle Paul, being so close to him, is the first one to realize that no, uh, a miracle of God is occurring here. He is still alive, and he announces it uh, to um, to everybody that is there um, at the the meeting. And I'm I'm thankful for this uh, demonstration of resurrection power in the Apostle Paul. Um, but at my age, it, it doesn't seem like a bad way to go. All things considered. You're at church. It's a warm room. You get a little drowsy. You have the sensation that you're falling. And the next moment you're in heaven. There's a lot of people who would Trade in whatever they're facing tonight in terms of entering into eternity for one like that. And of course, it's very good that he brings him back, brings him back, and this is a young man. He's not 80 years old or something like that. And uh, so certainly no root of bitterness, no argument that he might get from an 80-year-old uh, if, if it had been done to him. And uh, so the life is still in him. Now, when he had come up, uh, and and had broken bread and eaten uh, communion. They probably shared a communal meal. And they then talked and fellowshiped as, as Christians there for a long while, uh, even until daybreak. Uh, and then he departed and they brought the young man uh, in alive and they were not a little comforted. So certainly the passage te- uh, warns us against falling asleep in church. And I'm I'm, uh, kidding related to that a little bit. Um, I I don't think it's always necessary, but I don't think it does us any harm. I'm grateful for it, for having uh, worked many, many years uh, in the world before I became a pastor. And so we know what it is to come into church. The spirit is willing. The body is weak. Uh, When I worked for the phone company, back then there were no answering machines and this kind of stuff to put off calls in the middle of the night and emergencies where uh, you had to go out and take care of these things. And uh, so... You could end up coming to church very, very tired and fighting in the way that Eutychus did here and sometimes unsuccessfully. And and when I see it occurring in the room, I I don't have any problem with it at all. uh, We turned on the heat. These are comfortable seats and uh, it's as good a place to sleep if you're gonna uh, need to do that uh, um, uh, someplace. I I do like the observation that somebody made uh, concerning uh, people who fall asleep in church, though. He said, if you took all of the people in the world who fall asleep in church and you laid them end to end, uh, they'd be much more comfortable. And uh, that's, uh, uh, I think that's a good way to, to look at it. And then uh, we went ahead to, uh, to the ship. Uh, Paul, with his his group he's traveling with, they sailed to Assos and uh, they're attending to take Paul on on board for so he had given orders uh, intending himself to go on foot. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. And so following these events in Troas, the events in Ephesus, the apostle Paul puts these men that are traveling with him, except for Silas and Luke, puts him on a ship, heads him to the next city, and he apparently wants to walk now to the next destination and coming to uh, midylene, and I don 't know about you, but um, I don 't know of an activity. Uh, that is more conducive to trying to process life and to do th- uh, uh, figure things out and get clarity related to issues than uh, to take a walk and certainly in the countryside in in uh, making your way from one place to uh, the other, and so we sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chios and the following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at Uh, Triligium and the next day we came to Miletus for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia for he was hurrying uh, now at this time to be at Jerusalem if possible on the day of Pentecost remembering that these missionary journeys were not a period of weeks or months but they constituted years and so he's already been to Ephesus on this missionary journey he doesn't want to go back in there um, and maybe get bogged down with so many people that loved him and cared for him in that city, or stir up the silversmiths once again, and and all of that. And so, uh, but mainly he's trying to streamline his trip so he can get to Jerusalem in order to deliver deliver a monetary gift to the church that was uh, being persecuted and enduring uh, hardship in the city of Jerusalem, the Jewish church there. Uh, an offering from the Gentile churches. And so that's his uh, his plan and what he was uh, endeavoring to do. And so from Miletus, he then sent to Ephesus and he called for uh, the elders... Uh, of the church there in Ephesus. And so he called them to come to him in order that he might meet with them. And this meeting that he's going to have with them, uh, the apostle Paul believes it's going to be the last time he's going to see these men. And so you remember just even recently, he spent three years establishing the church there in Ephesus, the relationships that had been developed, certainly with leadership there. So he says, I'm in Miletus, come out. I want to talk to you and, uh, uh, about some things and fellowship a little bit quickly before I make my way to Jerusalem. And so uh, they, as you might imagine, made a beeline to uh, come out and to uh, meet with him. And so they traveled the 36 or so miles uh, to meet him in Miletus. I don't have any doubt that it it involved not only the leadership of Ephesus, but the leadership of other churches, satellite churches, that had been established in the cities around around Ephesus. And so they uh, came out uh, to him, and then he said to them, you know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you. And what you have here at this point through the remainder of this chapter is you have the Apostle Paul, essentially, um, uh, he's doing two things. He's reminding these leaders of how he conducted himself among them as a leader uh, in the three years that he was with them in Ephesus. And then the second thing he's going to do in this kind of sermon that he gives to them is he's going to charge them, he's going to commission them now to live the same kind of life that he did in their midst uh, among the church uh, there in Ephesus and among uh, Ephesus at large. And so this is his purposes for doing that. So um, without getting on... Uh, an, an international flight or a domestic flight or traveling in any way. What God does here is He takes us to a pastors' conference, a pastors and Christian leader conference, in which the Apostle Paul is the keynote speaker, and he is going to be speaking to them, to us, about uh, this kind of calling. Uh, and what it is to have this kind of calling, and the responsibility, and the privilege that is associated with it. So it's invaluable. Now, sometimes I don't know how much um, the average Christian goes into First and Second Timothy and Titus, which are letters that are written specifically uh, to church leaders about how to oversee a church and and all. But uh, God, the Holy Spirit, doesn't relegate uh, this input. To those letters. In other words, he wants every Christian to understand these things, to understand what is to be the standard for leadership in a church, the attitude of leadership within a church, because. If the leaders of the church understand from God that they are supposed to be a certain thing and conduct themselves in a certain way, but the congregation doesn't realize that they are compelled to do that and be that, then you can have a disconnect that occurs. And so God wants us to to all be on the same page. This is what is expected of leadership within a church, certainly of Christians as well, but as a, a leadership in a church. And uh, and and I need to know this as much as any of the leaders uh, uh, in a church need to know it as well by virtue of it being uh, where it is. And so he begins to speak to them uh, of the things that they had seen in him while they served with him in Ephesus. And he said, you, uh, you know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies. In every city saying that chains and tribulations await me. Punishment and imprisonment awaits me in in, uh, the city of, of Jerusalem. But none of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God." And indeed, now I know that uh, you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. And therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And so he calls on them to make his example, their example, in, uh, in their lives. And you notice at verse 18, he begins... Uh, by speaking of his manner of life uh, among them. That is that his example, his life was lived as an example uh, of Christianity. He lived his life as a a leader in a church, as an example that other Christians could follow. Um, He doesn't begin his sermon in the way that Uh, So many brochures and related to conferences and things that are going on today uh, doesn't begin by instructing them on how to outline a sermon uh, or how to build a big church or how to be an effective public speaker or have a dynamic ministry. These kinds of things that are uh, uh, put to the forefront so often today, but rather he emphasizes the importance of being an example of what we believe and living a life that's consistent with the message that we teach and we preach. So he says, you never saw a double life in me. You never saw a secret life. You never saw hypocrisy in me. There's the old saying about the person, uh, the Christian or any person really, but we'll apply it to Christians. And uh, the old saying goes, what you are speak so loudly, I can't hear what you're saying. And a life that is lived inconsistent, in a minister's life that is inconsistent with the message that he is declaring or she is declaring uh, in, in that vein, uh, uh, in, uh, then that creates an unnecessary crisis uh, for the listeners. We're not to deliberately li- live a life uh, where there is a, a, a glaring or noticeable, certainly not a deliberate uh, disconnect between what it is we teach and um, the life that we actually live. Uh, you all know what it's like uh, to be in that situation. Hopefully you haven't run into it in church, but um, it, it isn't a, a terribly uncommon for where someone might be a great teacher, but what they are privately is so far from what they teach. Um, the same thing can be true of a worship leader in a church that it creates a crisis in the person in the congregation it makes them very hard to receive the truth, um, not because it 's the truth of God, but to receive that truth from that person, and god doesn 't want any person to face that kind of crisis needlessly in a in a in a minister's life. Nobody's going to be perfect. Um, we will always, when we teach the Bible, anyone who teaches it, there will all, we we never teach it solely to the degree that we have attained to it. We will only attain to it completely when we're in heaven. But that gap between Uh, The life that we're living and the things that we're teaching, that gap should always be narrowing in our lives and never be broadening and uh, because it creates that kind of crisis uh, for uh, people. There's the old joke, uh, based upon truth, as most uh, good jokes are about the pastor's life uh, for a congregation, their pastor's life uh, outside of the pulpit being so questionable uh, that they wished he never left uh, the pulpit. And so here you have this uh, this call of Paul to be serious and mature about ministry and the, the consciousness that people don't come merely uh, to hear what a person has to say in ministering the word, but they have a right to expect to see it in that person's life uh, as well, and to be deliberate and intentional related uh, to that. Then second in verse 19, we notice that Paul served the Lord. And here we have something that is a, a tremendous revelation on the part of Paul in that he, it, 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 Paul reveals to us his motivation for his Christian service. And his motivation was to serve the Lord, And this is a critical motivation and the reason it needs to be the highest motivation in our lives in in Christian service because sooner or later, it doesn't matter how much we love people, our Christian service one day will require us to do and to make sacrifices that we would never make for other people, but we would make them for God. And as an expression of our love for God And and to one day hear his well done. The motivation for why we do what we do uh, is an absolute key to longevity in our Christian service. And the highest motivation is to serve um, uh, the Lord. It's the only motivation that holds up over the long haul. Then in verse 19, Paul continued his uh, encouragements and exhortations to them by speaking of the importance of uh, humility. He not only served the Lord, but he served with all humility. Where the minister or the servant or the leader um, views themselves with uh, with uh, uh, humility. They have a, a humble and a modest opinion uh, of ourselves. And so there isn't a place for, uh, sometimes y- you can see it where um, uh, the minister is like a rooster and or a peacock. I mean, it's just like as proud as can possibly be sometimes. And, and uh, we have to be careful uh, of, of this. And the realization that in a church service, really anywhere but in a church, the church exists for God. It's about God. So here we have 16 acres or so, almost 17 acres. How many acres, you subtract all of the churches in town, and but how many acres are set aside for all manner of things in just this community alone, and and so what uh, the the property that a church is, is on certainly the sanctuary of a church that is to be solely about God. It is not about the minister or the ministry team, uh, or drawing attention uh, to uh, our, ourselves and the and the one of the worst kind of deceptions that can occur is this idea that you have to be, have, hold a certain charisma or a certain way of talking or all these kind of things in order to draw people to you and your personality. Your personality, when it's just natural, that's fine. That's part of the calling. But draw people to you, make yourself the center of attention, and then you will point people to God. The problem is, uh, without humility, very few people then get pointed to God. And so, uh, this this humility, this healthy view uh, of of ourselves, uh, everything about uh, this calling and church leadership is um, all grace. Um, It is 100% grace. a work of God's grace in our lives, and for us to understand that, in in leadership, sometimes people um, will say something nice to me, and and uh, or whatever it might be, and I will tell people, I am a product of two things. I am the product of God's grace, number one, and of the prayers of God's people. That leaves very little for me to glory in, which is just exactly how God has to keep a knucklehead like me um, in in place. And pride's a great danger within church uh, leadership and to lose sight of the fact that God has called us, most of us, simply because we were the weakest and the most foolish, base, unworthy, ignoble person that he could find a use. So that when he used us, people would be so shocked the only conclusion that they could come to is it's God working in that person's life. I know that guy. And that's not the guy I know, that's God working through that guy. Famous passages Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame to wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame uh, the things that are mighty and the base things of the world, which are despised, God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. And so often I think all of us certainly in, uh, in everybody that I know in terms of the pastorate or teaching ministry. Um, we certainly we believe the truth of that passage. Um, but the longer we walk with the Lord and we serve the Lord. Um, the truth of that passage dawns on us deeper and deeper and deeper and everything that we thought was an asset or something other than grace for his use of us uh, ends up falling by the wayside and we realize, no, he chose the most foolish thing he could find in order that when he used that foolish vessel people would know that it is God at work and that he would receive the glory. When God uses any of us, he uses us despite us and not because of us. You notice also in verse 19 that he said he served with many tears and uh, trials. And so serving God in a position of leadership in a local church, it will involve uh, experiencing many trials. There are many, many joys, without a doubt, uh, and uh, but many trials... Uh, for sure, as well, certainly, as a leader uh, you 're a special uh, object of uh, the devil 's opposition and temptations against you, and there certainly, as a leader you 're going to uh, experience plenty of persecution and and rejection in the world and sometimes even within the the professing Christianity. And then there is the, the fighting to resist all of the false doctrines and all of the nonsense or the things that even aren't false doctrines, but they're false things to make the focus of a church. You think about how easy it is for a church. And so many, it has happened in the 40 years that, that I've been doing this and And there 's this fat, and everybody gloms onto this fat, and then this fat, and then there 's this movement, and that movement, and this movement a person can come to the end of thirty years of their Christian life and realize that all they 've been done all that has happened to them rather than growing in the Word of God and their relationship with God is to be pulled in twenty different directions, all of which ended up going in the dustbin of history, and they their time has been wasted. And so uh, the, um, uh, the necessity of keeping those things out of a church and to keep a church biblical and well-directed. Uh, and then there's the knowledge that comes with knowing all of the, so many of the private difficulties and trials of those that uh, attend a church. I don't know how many problems or trials or crises or hardships the average person has will um, face in the course of their life, how many deaths, these kind of of things. But I think that oftentimes a leader, certainly a pastor, um, is uh, within a year uh, confronted with something that probably approaches what the average person will experience in the course of maybe their entire lifetime. And there's an emotional toll that all of that takes upon uh, upon a, a person's life. And so sometimes people can look at uh, the calling of a pastor and uh, one joke that I get once in a while at the back door, but I always slug the person right in the uh, in, in the nose over it. Um, they'll ask me if I play golf all week. And I pull a club out. I keep one right behind the door uh, after the morning services and I whack them with it. So I don't know what the calling looks like from... Uh, from another vantage point, um, it, is, uh, it, is, it doesn't always have a, a strict nine-to-five aspect to it. And um, there is never a time in which you aren't carrying something, uh, usually something very, very significant that's going on uh, in the church or in people's lives. And, and so there are many tears and there are many uh, trials. Christian service... I think that whatever it might be has never been easy. It's not intended to be easy. And uh, sometimes we just need to be reminded by the Apostle Paul not to bring another expectation to leadership within a church. I'm also convinced that um, God takes and puts a leader and and puts him in a place uh, in in. Uh, in a church, and then allows them to uh, endure, sometimes even private in their own life, many tears and and many trials in order to develop our character. I mean, if everything was just going from mountaintop experience to mountaintop experience, it would be almost impossible not to become uh, proud, to become arrogant, uh, to talk down to people, to become a peacock um, in in the church, and, uh, and so these trials and these difficulties, they, uh, they uh, f- develop a godly character in our lives. It forces us to stay close to God and to remain dependent upon God. It certainly in my life has forced me to um, grow in ways that I would have never forced myself to grow uh, on, on my uh, own. And it's certainly the trials and the difficulties purify our uh, motives. And so this is something to keep in in mind when uh, these trials and these uh, difficulties and tears uh, can mount up that they're doing this uh, otherwise very, very good and necessary thing in our lives. In verse 20 and 21, Paul gives his attitude or his heart Um, uh, in terms of uh, preaching the gospel. Uh, Just a couple more verses down the line he's going to talk about his attitude uh, related to teaching the Word of God. You preach to the lost. Um, You teach those who are saved. And so here he's talking about uh, his attitude toward the preaching of the gospel. And here he gives us this great definition for how a person gets saved and First and foremost, of course, it occurs by putting our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our uh, our sins. But I want you to notice that word repentance right in the middle of that section of his his sermon. And uh, uh, and so it, it, to be saved is to turn to God and put my faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. Be born again, but and it, it, to turn to God means I have to turn away from something in life to do that and that's what repentance is. Repentance means to have a change of mind about my life, the direction of my life, how I'm living my life, and so, in order to turn as I'm walking in the world and, and living and walking in the direction of sin and selfishness, in order to turn to God, I must of necessity repent of these other things. And, and the reason that's important to hear is that repentance is the, the great um, minimized word related to salvation. Salvation. The necessity of repentance in salvation. It's not how we get saved. We get saved by putting our faith in Christ. But in order to turn to him, there is that counting of the cost. If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. To turn to God means I'm going to have to then turn away from these things now and give my life uh, to the Lord fully for his his, his purposes. And so, this beautiful uh, repentance. Sometimes people think of repentance because, you see, when I grew up, I, I especially liked the comics in the New Yorker magazine. And uh, And when i was eight years old i subscribed to the new yorker magazine i'm just kidding Uh, but occasionally i would go to a doctor's office or a dentist's office and they would have it in there and i thought they just had the best comics in uh in there it's very cerebral and uh, so what magazine here has the greatest comics and, and they were uh, terrific. And so you'd see uh, pretty regularly back in those days, there would be somebody, his hair is really long and, is, and gray and a big long beard and he's got a sandwich signboard on and repent, the end is near. And they would, there would be some joke about that. And repentance is oftentimes viewed as kind of a negative uh, thing by people. But repentance is a privilege. It, it is a privilege to be able to have a salvation offered to us that not only allows us to turn to God, but gives us the power and the ability to turn away from our own life and these old bondages now to follow God. The first word out of Jesus' mouth in his public ministry was the word repent. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And when Jesus called on people to repent, there was no sense that he uh, was doing something terrible to a person by calling them to repent, giving them the opportunity to repent, but that only a wonderful thing was being extended to them and a wonderful call in their lives uh, exactly uh, as Uh, 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 as it it truly is. I just want to say one final thing here in regard to to proclaiming uh, the gospel. Today, in in more recent years, it's been kind of trendy to follow the saying of St. Francis of Assisi and uh, where people will say, preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. And of course, we all understand what St. Francis of Assisi was saying and uh, declaring that uh, a a life lived as an example of a Christian is a powerful witness in any environment where we're not able to share the gospel uh, verbally but we should never conclude that it's enough to just simply live a godly life before people and then never share the gospel with them, the source of that that godly life, that changed life. And it's important to pr- uh, proclaim the gospel as well. And people will never understand the gospel uh, from my life alone. It has to be spoken to them. Paul wrote to the church in Rome, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. In in verses 22 to uh, 24, You notice Paul's autobiographical statement. He said, in spite of all these tears, in spite of these trials, in in spite of the promise that chains and imprisonment awaited him uh, uh, further down in his uh, his calling, uh, he said, none of these things uh, move me. And that was his attitude uh, toward them. And you ask yourself, what lay behind that kind of a decision and that kind of a commitment? And he tells us, nor do I count my life dear to myself. The Apostle Paul's attitude toward himself was, I'm not too good to do anything that God calls me to do. I'm not above doing anything that God calls me to do. I'm not above experiencing and being faithful uh, to what God has called me to do, whatever the hardships might be related to to my uh, life. And he looked at God and he said, uh, related to God, so important in all of our lives as Christians, but certainly leaders, Lord, my life is yours. You spend it however you want, wherever you want. You do what your plan is. And I think that the Apostle Paul, he was very aware uh, all the way to the end of his life of who and what he was before he became a Christian. A zealot religiously. But he was wasting his life. He was throwing his life away. It is, you are, it is as possible to waste my life and throw my life away in the realm of religion as it is in sex, drugs, rock and roll. He was wasting his life. And there was that recognition that if God had not come into my life and he had not saved me, I would have thrown my life away a hundred different ways and that recognition in our lives as well. And so, Lord, I would have destroyed myself any one of a hundred ways. And you have chosen to take my life, and you have a plan for it, and am I now too good? to do whatever it is that you have uh, for uh, my life and to complain against it. And the Apostle Paul said, uh, no, that wasn't his attitude at all. He didn't count his life dear to himself. Jesus declared, and whatever, whoever of you desires to be first, let him be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And if I am, as a leader, unwilling to do anything that God tells me to do, then I am, think that I am more important than Jesus. And if the leadership of a church becomes uh, something, a, a group of people that begins to count their life dear, rather than being servants of the body that, that they are serving, uh, then that church is going to end up being ruled by a bunch of proud, uh, self-important uh, prima donnas and snowflakes, whatever uh, that will translate into in coming years. And so our understanding of ourselves is that God owns us and he can do whatever he wants with our lives. In verse 26 and 27, Paul gives his attitude uh, and and his heart related to the teaching of God's word. And uh, verse 27, he taught them the whole counsel of God, the whole Bible. He declares this as if this is a great accomplishment in his life. And uh, to have have done that, "I, I am innocent of the blood of all men because I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God, Entirety of the Bible. I don't know how to declare the whole counsel of God to a congregation except to teach the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And then on the Sunday mornings to teach through individual books in the Bible so that ultimately everybody who wants to within a church can receive the entire uh, counsel of God. I like the old saying, it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian to reach a whole world. And, And it's true. And one of the great things that I love about teaching the Bible and heading to the next passage and heading to the next passage and then and to the next passage is that it keeps me well-directed. Uh, again, there's a numbskull that lives inside of me. And in every pastor you will ever meet, we all have our hobby horses. We all have the things that interest us the most in life and interest us the most in the Bible, other things that are very little interest to us, just by personal preference. And when you teach right through the Bible, you're forced to teach everything, but then uh, even as important, you are teaching it in the proportion in which it's represented in the Bible, so that people get a well-balanced uh, diet. They hear the things that they need to hear over and over and over again, over and over and over again. And the things that they don't need to hear or we don't need to hear uh, with, uh, with that kind of frequency, then we hear them with less frequency, but we hear them. I can't tell you how many times I've sat down in the course of a week and looked at a passage especially on the Sunday mornings, going through a book or something like that and saying, well, this happens every week. Lord, what in the world are we going to do with this? Meaning, what in the world are you going to do with this? Help, Cecil, help! For those of you who watched the Bullwinkle cartoons, it's just like that. What do I have to say? What do I have this book 's a closed book to me apart from the holy spirit what 's the meaning of the passage? What do you want to emphasize out of uh, out of uh, the passage here and then and then he uh, gives that uh, gives that uh, to me, and so uh, these things that I would look and say, "This is just not going to get any traction at all, Lord, this Sunday, if you want my opinion or we begin to develop the passage with him, and then sometimes the goofiest passages where you just think, what is there that can't be said in just reading the verse and leaving it, it turns into some of the richest explorations of the Word of God. And that's the supernaturalness of, of the Word of God. And Paul, because he had taught the entirety of the Word of God, he declared himself to be innocent of the blood of all Uh, Everybody has a right to hear God's Word. And it's my responsibility, it's our responsibility to teach the Word of God. What people do with the Word of God after that is their responsibility. But until I teach the Word of God, and, and if I deliberately neglect that teaching in their life, then I'm guilty of their life in a sense, because now they're living a life in which they are ill-informed biblically and I'm the one that's at fault for that. And the only way to keep from carrying that guilt as a Bible teacher and as a pastor is to teach the whole uh, counsel of God. And then in verse 28, the Apostle Paul, he then uh, shifts in his charge uh, to them and commissioning them on um on their responsibility and how to follow his example uh in leading the church into its next stage uh of uh, exis- its existence and so there's quite a bit of content in here but um i mean we read about going till midnight and uh so it now we'll stop there tonight and uh We'll pick that up and the valuable lessons there for ministry and for the local church and understanding it, God willing, next week. Let's stand together, ask the worship team to come forward and close us in a song and I'll close us in prayer. If you're here this evening, and it's possible, unfortunately, in lots of environments to um, spend a lot of time in religious environments, even environments that claim to represent Christ and never be told the necessity of being born again, putting my faith in Jesus Christ to be saved. Salvation doesn't occur because I have attended church or I'm in a church. It occurs as an act of my will at some point in my life where I say, I am a sinner My sin has separated me from you, God. I believe that you sent Jesus to pay the price for the forgiveness of my sins, and I put my trust in him, and I repent in order to do so. Put my trust in him, and I give you my life, and then a person is born again. If you've never done that, there'll be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to do that. If you need prayer for anything in your life this evening, they'd love to pray with you and for you as well. Father, thank you for this passage this evening and the glimpse that we have into um, the Apostle Paul's life. Um, These autobiographical statements that he makes. We see his doctrine. We see his travels. Um, We read his sermons his preaching, but to be able to look tonight at what lay in the depths of this man and his understanding of the Christian life, his understanding of ministry, what was at the foundation of his faithfulness and living such a self-sacrificial life and such a fruitful life. And we thank you for the opportunity to begin to explore those things even this evening, as leaders, Lord, but then as members of a congregation, and to realize that a local church is not some big experiment where we get to do just whatever we want or whatever crazy idea that comes into our minds, but that it's the most important thing that's happening in the entire world. And it's to be handled in a certain way And it's to be led by certain people. And we thank you for this instruction tonight. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.